Hey guys, Eric here, and I want to talk to you real quick about the dailydownforce.com. Every day, this website covers the latest news and trends in NASCAR, from silly season right through the checkered flag in Phoenix. Need a new morning routine as soon as you wake up? Well, now you have it, dailydownforce.com. This is the website I use to keep up with the industry, the drivers, and of course, what the community is talking about. And speaking of community, dailydownforce.com is also home to some of your other favorite NASCAR content creators. Plus, they've got all sorts of information that I like to keep bookmarked, like schedules, penalties, ratings, and everything you want to know. Oh, and be sure to check out the merch shop while you're there to find some exclusive diecasts and collectibles. So check out dailydownforce.com, that's dailydownforce.com, and I'll see you in the replies. Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They had been been around the block a time or two. What's the first deal they built, I bet? No, no. You know, I think they were, they had, the the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped up car, and he he complained that the government gave him these piece of crap, cheapo cars, and that, that were really no match. But he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Bought Podcast. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item packed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. 
It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Presented by QWare. Maintain excellence. The biggest thing that I doubted was what I was feeling. Jack said to me one day, he thought my assometer was messed up. I was terrified about not driving and still wanted to drive. And as soon as he hit, you know how mad you get? All that went away. And I was concerned that he was hurt. You know, I left high school and went and built race cars, and I live in the greatest country in the world, and I don't feel like I've served it. The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast presented by QWare. And Steve, this week, because of this whole safe distance thing, we are actually sitting across the room from each other. (laughs) And you never look better. (laughs) And I just have one question. Why are you going to sit me next to the candy dish? I just want to see how strong your will is. (laughs) Not very strong. (laughs) How long have you known me? (laughs) Well, Steve, this week, in all seriousness, it has been a crazy couple of weeks. Absolutely. And one thing that I did want to mention at the very top of the show was the iRacing event that was held yesterday on Sunday and all the participants in that. And I thought it was pretty cool. If you had told me two months ago that I would ever sit and watch what some people might call a video game (laughs) on TV, I would have thought that you were absolutely crazy. But I watched... Most of that event yesterday. I don't know much about it. I, you yeah, know, yeah. To me, it is a video game on yeah, TV, yeah. but uh, to many, many other people, it's far more than that. The thing that I think is cool is all the possibilities because Dale Jr. is kind of spearheading this event. He's the name behind it, and so people are kind of gravitating to it. And, of course, his love for NASCAR history is very well known. So they've already scanned North Wilkesboro. And they have Rockingham just down the road that they could go scan. So if we can get some of the historic tracks involved in this mix and some of the cars. Yeah, and that I would like to see. Give me a mid-1970s Petty Charger. Absolutely. The most beautiful race car that has ever taken to the racetrack build an iRacing car around that, an actual 1970s, not, not a throwback scheme, right. but a period race car and have an event made of those, count me in, buddy. Oh, I'm man. mortgaging the house to buy <laughs> me a wreck. <laughs> that sounds pretty cool to me. And I kind of like to see some other cars like, uh, oh, how about the Pure Later 21 Mercury, huh? Yes, sir. How about that one? Oh, now, this is bringing up some possibilities. <laughs> I would like to see a Sam Ard paint scheme. That's good. The, Sam Ard's red and white double zero Thomas Brothers Country ham car, that was one of the most simply designed cars, but I also thought it was one of the most beautiful cars. Well, I know to tell you another one that was pretty simply designed. It was red with a gold roof 
and Coca-Cola on the side. 1972 Chevrolet. Now, see, I'm a Pepsi guy. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a Pepsi guy. <laughs> that car was monumental in more ways than one. Not only did Bobby Allison win 10 races in one season for Junior Johnson in that car, but yes, that marked yeah. the full-blown return of Chevrolet. So get that Bobby Allison Junior Johnson Coca-Cola car and my petty Dodge Charger in the same race at North Wilkesboro. Or even Marsville. Now we're talking, baby. Yeah. Or now even we're talking. <laughs> you talk about some tough, short track racing. We could do Bristol, where oh. you could actually see trees and grass outside the racetrack. There you go. Remember the barn out behind turns yeah. three? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we could do that. That would be beautiful, man. I'm all over this. I'm excited about it now. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, another piece of good news. Jayski, the just phenomenally successful NASCAR website. Scott Page has been one of my best friends in the sport for a long time. He got into the sport doing the BGNRacing.com site. And of course, me being the Bush Series editor at Scene, we knew each other and all that. We went out to dinner several times. <laughs> Rendezvous ribs will never be the same <laughs> in Memphis. But now he has been overseeing the Jayski website for several years now. And during this slowdown, everybody's looking for content. And so what we are going to be doing, the videos that we're doing with our interviews, Jayski is going to be providing those to their followers and website visitors. And I'm kind of excited about that. You ought to be. That's great. It is truly one of those deals where it helps them with content and it helps us. There's no other way to put it. It helps us with exposure. Exactly. Because they have, I think I saw where they have like 113,000 followers on Twitter and their page views on the website, man. Good grief, man. <laughs> oh, I'm not surprised at all. I've been a fan of Jayski's for years. So absolutely, please head over to Jayski. Follow them on Twitter. Follow them on social media. Check out some of our highlight videos. And please let them know that you appreciate them helping us out. And Steve, speaking of the shutdown, Ryan Cochran from Wyandotte, Michigan, became a new supporter on Patreon this week. And also, out of the blue, I was not expecting this, but I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. Out of the blue yesterday on Sunday, he tweeted a video that absolutely kind of blew me away. Ryan filmed himself while he was out running. Yes, I saw that. <laughs> and he mentioned me and my trials and tribulations trying to get in better shape and all that. But he tweeted this video while he was running. And if it had been me, I would have been flat on my face <laughs> <laughs> after about 10 steps. But listen to this audio. And again, he was running, so that's why he was a little bit out of breath. But here is what he had to say. Hey, Rick Houston, Steve Wade, how are you for a run, Rick? I know you'd appreciate that. Got to stay healthy, keep moving in the quarantine. I just want to say I appreciate you guys doing a Scene Vault podcast this week. You guys don't have to do that, and everyone will understand, but you did. And it means a lot to me personally. Helps me get through this run. Keeps me motivated. Jeff Burton, he's an inspirational guy. Can't think of a better person to listen to talk. Appreciate you guys. Thank you. Steve, can you believe that somebody follows us and listens to us and it has that kind of impact? Man, I am so 
on board. Well, I got to tell you, you know, what that is all about is truly unique. If somebody would take the imagination and the time to do that while running. Yeah, yeah. That's just incredible. Well, Steve, I actually followed Ryan on Twitter and sent him a direct message kind of thanking him for that response and got this response back from him. And he said, Rick, thank you guys. You have no idea what your podcast means to me. My father and I get to tell stories and bond because of what we hear on your podcast. And that is priceless to me. I've grown up following NASCAR and going to races. One of our dear friends is a gentleman named Ralph Young, who was Benny Parsons' crew chief in ARCA. Benny, Steve, and Phil used to come to our campsite in the infield at Michigan and sit with Ralph and tell stories until 2 a.m. I was seven, eight, nine years old, just staying up way too late, listening to those great racing stories. It's some of my fondest memories. Listening to your podcast takes me back to those nights. Please keep up the good work. Now, the whole relationship with his dad and them being able to bond over over this silly little podcast (laughs) that you and I do, that was, yeah, that's why we do this show. Rick, that should make you feel mighty, mighty good. (laughs) Well, it does, absolutely. And Steve, also, also, this might be the very longest intro that we've ever had, but Chase Whitaker from down around Nashville Way. I'm going to put Chase up against anybody in the world as a petty enterprises and petty family scholar. He is known as at Too Much Country on Twitter. I've seen him, yes. I'm going to put him up against Richard (laughs) (laughs) in a petty family trivia contest. Now, that's pretty stout, Rick. (laughs) Okay, so... Dude knows his stuff. A couple of weeks ago, Kyle's 1993 win at Pocono was featured in our issue of the week. And as we discussed in that episode, I mentioned that according to Deb Williams' race lead in that issue, it was the first super speedway victory for a car number 42 since Lee Petty won the inaugural Daytona 500 in 1959. I think something's coming here. However... <laughs> Chase called me on my cell, and he pointed out that Marvin Panch had won the 1966 World 600 at Charlotte, running the number 42 for Petty Enterprises. Oh, ha. So, I got a question for you. Do you want to be the one to go to Deb and tell her <laughs> no, <laughs> that there was something wrong with her race lead? <laughs> no, thank you. No. Or do you want to do rock, paper, scissors to decide? <laughs> I'll leave it all up to you. <laughs> well, maybe she'll just listen to the podcast and find out that way. <laughs> Steve, in our first segment this week, we have the third and final installment of our interview with Jeff Burton. And people, again, have really responded to that. I think people are really figuring out, finding out, rediscovering why Jeff is called the mayor and the diplomat. So this week he talks about his split with crew chief Frankie Stoddard, who left the team midway through the 2002 season, and how maybe he didn't quite handle it the way that he should have. Jeff also talks about moving over to Richard Childress Racing and the shockwaves that that kind of sent through the sport. (laughs) He also talks about his quote-unquote fight with Jeff Gordon at Texas, and ultimately he discusses his move to the broadcast booth. And in our second segment, 
We are going to go back to the September 4th, 1997 issue of Winston Cup Scene. Jeff Gordon wins the Southern 500 to claim the Winston Million for only the second time in the program's history. Jeff Burton finishes second, which apparently triggers a conspiracy theory. And Dale Earnhardt in that 1997 Southern 500 at Darlington. Man, I don't know what happened with Dale even now. That is ingrained in my memory. That was one of the most unusual yeah. things I've ever seen yeah. on a racetrack. I was down in the pits, and so I couldn't see quite over the pit wall, but I saw the black, the roof of his car going by, and he was so low that you couldn't see the car. Oh, All you could absolutely. see was the I roof. I saw the car swing back yeah. and forth on the yeah. track. Yeah, so that was very scary. But he came through it without any right. repercussions. Very, very yeah. strange. Yeah, so it was very strange. As we mentioned, we have new Patreon support this week from Ryan, and we also have new support from Dave Sykes and Jeff Rockwood. Listen, I know everything that's going on right now. I know that money may be tight with a lot of you, but if you can, please help us out on Patreon. Help us out on PayPal. Support QWare. Support Brian Kelb. And you know the incentives the commemorative issue of Grand National Scene, the Winston Cup scenes, the Scene Vault podcast jacket. If you can, please do consider helping us out. You can do that at patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash the Scene Vault podcast. Or if you would rather just do a one-time show of support, you can do that at paypal.me slash the Scene Vault podcast. Jeff, 2002, you go winless for the first time since 1996, and you part ways with Frankie Stoddard, who was yep. your crew chief. And from the way that the next week's Winston Cup scene read, um, <laughs> it, it was obviously <laughs> um, it was pretty much your call. How difficult was that season and that move for you? Well, it was really difficult, and it was also, you know, I've talked about the things that, that I went through, and that was one of those things that I went through, and I didn't handle it as well as I should have. You know, we had had a – Frank and I had had a conversation, you know, quite a bit before that, and I had said to him, look, we have to – if you know, if we can't get going, we're going to have to do something different. But that was all that I ever said, and Frank deserved more than that. And, and um, you know, Frank had, Frank had moved down. You know, I was a huge Frank Sodder proponent um, and defended Frank – you know, many, many times with with uh, with Jack and with, with other people. And I was the reason that Frank was here because I saw in him what I saw in him. And I worked I worked a long time to get Frank to move to come down south. And finally, when the 99 thing happened, he did it. And uh, I just a ton of confidence in what Frank could do. And and uh, we had a, we had several young people that we had to decide who was going to be the crew chief when when Buddy wasn't going to be the crew chief anymore and he was going to be the general manager when we moved Mark into the into the team into the shop with us which that's a whole another story but but um and so I I picked Frank and when I picked Frank there were some people that got upset at me that thought they should have been the guy but he was a guy I thought was right and we won a lot of races together and and to this day, I think Frank. If I owned a Cup team, I would. I don't. Frank might not work for me, but if I owned a Cup team, I would. I would call <laughs> yeah. Frank, and he would be my strategist. Like I'd have him. I'd have him. He would be my strategy guy. And if he said pit, we're going pit because I think Frank was one of the 
the very best strategy guys in the in the history of NASCAR. He was just unbelievable at it, and and really really competitive guy. Uh, but unfortunately, we just weren't running well. We would, and we had not run well long enough to where we had to do something. And and um, you know that guy's been me before as a driver, and and in this case, it was it was the crew chief. And and uh, but we had to do something, and 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 it, but but that did not get handled as well as it should have, and most of that was on my on my shoulders. Yeah, a couple of years later in 2004, you run part of the season without a sponsor, and then in August, you leave Roush Racing and Ford for Richard Childress and Chevrolet. Yeah, now that was a seismic. <laughs> change in the garage area and for you in particular so what was going on behind the scenes for all of this well we still had been running well and and we went from being you know you mentioned that year we won all we won some races and uh, i think we won two races and but we i was the only driver at roush to win and then the following year i was the only driver at roush not to win and that continued and uh we were the worst team and and uh just couldn't seem to get the ship righted um now, I will say this, um, we started to get it. Like, we started, I could see it and feel it. We were starting to get there. Uh, the opportunity with Richard came, uh, and, and um, you know, it was just the right time. It was, it was time for Jack and I to do something different. And um, I believed in my heart, and Carl Edwards, I called Carl Edwards myself, and I said, dude, I'm... I'm gonna I'm gonna go to Jack. I'm gonna work for Richard. You need to drive a '99 car. And he's like, "What?" And I told I told Jack Roush. I told Jeff Smith. I said, "That's the guy." Well, he's not ready. I said, "Bull, he's ready." <laughs> I'm telling you, he's ready. And I, you can ask my wife, and you can ask Russell Branham. We sat in the office of my my office in my house when I made the decision to go to Richards, and I told both. I looked them both in the eye, and I said, "Here's what's going to happen." And I don't want to hear anything from you two. For the next 18 months, we're going to get our ass handed to us. Period. End of story. And I said, but we're doing this because it's time for us all to do something different. Jack needs a different look. I need a different look. The, the challenge that Richard had given me, I, my voice was starting to not be heard at Roush because I hadn't been successful. Richard was go- willing to give me that voice to do more than just be a driver which is what I was, that's what would make, that's what I had success. I had success by not just sitting in the seat and being a driver, but by being part of the process. And that had quit working at Roush. But I knew that Carl Edwards and that team was going to kick my ass. I knew it. I told them, I said, it's going to take, it'll take a year and a half to get it where we need to be. And it did. And, and, and I took an ass whipping for, for 18 months. <laughs> and, but I yeah. went, we went to Vegas off season, went to Vegas off season test and we had run about a half a day and Mark, we were in one garage and Mark Martin was testing in another garage and I, and my phone, I'm out of the car and my phone's ringing and it's Mark. And he said, uh, he said, you finally got it, don't you bud? And I said, what do you mean? He said, I'm down here. Y'all hauling ass. He said, you you finally got what you need. And I said, dude, this stuff drives really good. And from then on, we started kicking their ass. And, but it took, it took 18 months. I shouldn't say kicking their ass. We, we, we had great battles. Right. We had great battles. Well, 2006, you went at Dover. Now, it ended a winless streak that went back nearly five years. Yeah. Now, how often, if ever, 
did you maybe doubt yourself or your abilities during those five years? The biggest thing that I doubted was what I was feeling. You know, Jack Jack said to me one day, he thought my assometer was messed up. <laughs> and it was hard to argue, right? Because I couldn't make lap time. Like, I couldn't figure out what my strength had always been was I felt what I felt, and I made the changes or asked for the changes, and we would go make that happen. And I couldn't – I didn't know what – it just, just wasn't working. So that was my biggest concern was if I can't feel what I need, I can't be successful because Mark Martin's better than I am. I got to find another way to beat him. And, and uh, that was really my biggest concern. And, um, but, but, I always, but at the back of my mind, I always knew, well, if we get these cars to drive the way I want them to drive, they will feel the way I want them to feel. And so that was the, that was the internal struggle. It really wasn't – I didn't question my ability. I questioned, was I able to re- take the information and process it and provide the feel that I needed to be able to make the lap time? Anymore? So obviously it relates to the next question, which is, what did it really mean to you personally to win that race? Well, you mentioned it. When I left Roush, that was a big deal. And then on top of that, I immediately went, I left Roush. I, was, I was, wasn't running well there. I immediately left Roush, went to Richards. The car I was driving is beating me every single week and running well. And um, this put that behind me. Uh, now, that win, we had been running well. Yeah. You know, we had been running well enough. So we were, that's typically what happens, right? You typically run well, then you win. You don't win and run like crap unless you just catch a break. But, um it it was it was the confirmation that, you know how do I say this without sounding bad I, I, so many drivers came to victory lane that day it was raining like hell and there were so many drivers that came to victory lane that day to congratulate me and i mean hell i, I it's emotional talking about it that meant that that meant so much to me um and the respect of those guys, I, it matters to me. The respect to even today, when I walk in a cup garage today, I want the drivers, the current drivers, crew chiefs, crew members. Their respect is what I quest. That's their respect is what. And for those drivers, for Jack Roush, for former teammates, competitors, come to Victory Lane on a day where it was difficult for them to come to Victory Lane. That that just meant that meant a ton to me, more than more than anyone will ever know. You eventually get sponsorship from Caterpillar. Did Ward ever come to you and attempt to teach you how to properly say <laughs> cat skid steer loader? Cat skid steer loader. I can do it. <laughs> <laughs> one of the best of all time. Yeah, that's one of the best. That That is, you know, it's funny because, like, people think that was a, that was staged. I'm like, no, that's Ward. <laughs> so if, we don't, if you don't know what you, if, if you don't know what we're talking about, just do a Google search for Ward Burden, Cat Skids Deer Loader, and it will John Boy and Billy. Yeah. About two minutes of fun. <laughs> Jeff, you win races in 06, 07, and 08, and you're in the top 10 in the final standings each year. But in 2009, the team has a pretty big drop off in results. Was there anything in particular going on, or had it simply gotten that much harder to be successful yeah, on the racetrack? That's, you know, that's, I don't know. Um, you know, in the, the, the so. Within those times, you know, we went to we went to Martinsville with a big point lead, with only like four races left in a year, 
And I remember, I think Junior, Junior made a comment after the Charlotte race that I was a new ice man, that they, no one was going to beat us, that we were going to win a championship. And I felt that way too. And we went to Martinsville and blew a motor. Wow. Yeah. And, yeah. and now we left there like, I don't know, second or third in points. Then we go the next week to Texas and blow a tire. And that was my last, that was my last chance to win, win that championship. And, and, um, we were in great position to win that championship. We had tremendous speed. We had Scott Miller and I were on the same page. Like we were, I knew it wasn't over, but I knew if it just came down to competition, we were going to win. And because of what we had, what we had done, and we were we were so close, but when we broke that motor, and then we went to Texas and blew a right front tire, it was over. And that was my, you know, my goal going to Richards was I wanted, I wanted to put Richard Childress Racing back, not in victory lane, back in the championship, because what Dale and Richard had done, that was my goal, and and uh, that was. That was the most disappointing thing that we weren't we weren't able to make that happen. We had it; it was in it was there for us, and we just we just things that were. I honestly feel like things that were out of my control and Scott's control. You know, we just couldn't pull it. We just didn't make it happen, and that that's the most disappointing thing about all that. Jeff, two thousand ten, Texas. I don't guess there's any two drivers that would have been more surprising to see start duking it out other than you and Jeff Gordon. Maybe Lake Speed and Morgan Shepard after a <laughs> MRO service or something. <laughs> Who won the fight? That wasn't a fight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you're scoring, if you're on the scorecard, it's hard to score something that wasn't a fight. It's just a pushing match. But I did tell, I, uh, you know, and, and that, was, um, that was one of the low life, some low life, you know, lowest moments of my career. Really? Yeah that stupid altercation because um i mean the whole story behind it is we were both pissed off because we were running like 18th yeah and and um you know he i was running the high line he was running the bottom he thought i should let him let him go he made a big swerve at me because he was mad and my temper got the better of me and i stood wide open in the gas i wasn't trying to wreck him but we got hooked up and once we got hooked up we couldn't get apart and and when he hit I mean, he hit really hard, and and as soon as he hit, like the energy, all the energy, you know how mad you get and how, you know, all that went away, and I was concerned that he was hurt, and I, and wow. on top of that, I knew yeah. what it looked like. Yeah. You know, yeah. and if you yeah. watch that and you don't think that I intentionally wrecked him, you're blind, and, and, but I didn't, but I knew what it looked like, and I knew my anger had put me in a situation to put him in that situation. And um, it was, it just wasn't, it was, it was not at all what I am, you know what I mean? And I felt like, you dumbass, you know, your temper got the better of you, you put somebody else in jeopardy, and you made yourself look silly, and, and you know, all my, my, uh, my reputation, I felt like my, who I was, was not demonstrated on that day, and it was one of the low, one of my low moments. What I was going to say is what wasn't surprising was the fact that you immediately manned up and on TV immediately afterwards, you immediately took kind of the blame for that. Well, you know, we both were at fault at it, but because I made the the final contact, I was 
the most at fault, and it's just it is what it is. And and uh, yeah, that was that was. Uh, I mean, it's kind of funny now, but at the time, it wasn't. You know, it just wasn't. And and um, I was uh, one a funny story is uh, Mike Helton called me a few days later, and he says, "Hey, look, we we, you know, we're looking at this thing. I need you to tell me what happened, and you know, we might have to we might have to to fine make a fine here." Or, some kind of punishment and I, I immediately I don't even know where this came from I immediately said dude I don't think you ought to find him I don't think you meant to do it <laughs> Mike, Mike kind of ch- chuckled he kind of chuckled a little bit and laughed <laughs> to this day I don't know and I think that saved me probably 15 or 20 thousand but <laughs> well 2013 was your last full time season uh, full-time behind the wheel. At what point did uh, television first enter the picture? Oh, gosh. Uh, So um, everybody had me doing TV but me. Like, if you remember, a lot of people were saying, he's going to go do TV, he's going to go do TV. I hadn't had any conversation with anybody about doing TV. Uh, Some conversations did start, um, but way after other people were were anointing me as the next TV guy. Um, so when uh, Richard and I sat down and we had a conversation that it would it was probably in everybody's best interest. So I was going to run one more year. I wanted to run one more year full time, and then I was going to retire. And I, at that point, when Richard and I sat down and had a conversation, and it was in his best interest. Uh, for some business reasons, uh, for some competition reasons, that I didn't run that next year. At that point, I had started to have some real vague, like not nothing at all, but but some conversations about possibly doing TV. Um, it all started to get put together because now I had a I had a year that I had planned on racing that I wasn't going to race. And what am I going to do? And and I didn't see, you know, no one was going, no major team was going to hire me. I had no interest in running for a, a smaller team. Just wasn't at that point in my life. And um, so that's when it really became serious. And that's when I was really able to to start spending real time talking about it. Um, but you can't race and do TV. But but my. My plan was, and this all happened after the fact. Like I wasn't talking to TV when all that happened. But if you look, if I were to run that last year full time, the next year was when NBC was going to come in. So it all was going to lay out really nicely. But what ended up happening was when Richard and I made the decision, it allowed me to spend a year uh, diving into television and doing NASCAR America and understanding more how it worked. And so that was actually, you know, like I said with Carl Edwards, it was time for Jack and it was time for me. It was also time for Richard and it was also time for me and it was time for TV. It all merged to where we all, it, everybody came out the winner. And, and so I've had that happen to me twice in my career where, you know, everybody came out better. Uh, Richard went with Ryan Newman. They had a really good year. They had good sponsorship. Uh, I went and was able to, 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 to do TV and learn. So it was a win for everybody. And, you know, I've had that happen to me twice where everybody won. 
how long did it take you to adjust to watching and talking about the sport rather than being down on the track yourself? Was there a period of maybe withdrawals? So I was terrified about not driving and, and, um, and still wanted to drive. And, and, uh, but when, but when I started, so when Rick Allen and I went to Connecticut, the first show I did for an NBC was our very, very first NASCAR America show. And it was going to be the Monday after that Daytona 500. So, um, in the, the Olympic, the Winter Olympics are going on. So I go to, I go to the Daytona 500. I go down there, but I'm sitting in the Orlando airport when they're dropping the green flag in a, or in a Orlando airport restaurant. And I'm like, what in the hell is going on? Like, they're going to start this race without me, right? <laughs> I, I, and here I am going to get on an airport to go to Connecticut to talk about it. And that was my, oh, crap. But when I got to Connecticut, and it rained, it rained. So I got there, and I was able to do the show and, see, and, and, and sit down with Rick Allen and sit down with the production crew and watch the race together. And at that time, I said, you know what, I'm, this is, it's a different team, but it's a team. And how are we going to do this? And so I went, in, went into to the, the studios on Monday, and typical me, there was some stuff in the studio. I didn't like how they were doing it. Like they had a, they had a uh, and this is nothing against any particular driver, but they had uh, uh, numbers on the wall, right? And they had the 10, which was Danica. They had uh, uh, the 88, which was Junior. They had, you know, the popular. And I said, how... What's the deal with these numbers? Well, that's I, I know whose numbers they are, but but why are they up there? Well, they're the most popular. I said, to hell with that. They got to earn it. <laughs> that's right. Like yeah. the top yeah. five on that board are the top yeah. five from the race. Yeah. Like I don't give a damn who they are. And so, and I'm flexing my muscles a little bit just to see how big they are, right? Yeah. And the the guy's like, okay, that's cool. I like that. So I'm like, okay, I'm gonna fit in here right? because because <laughs> I don't I I can't I can't and don't want to be part of something that I'm not part of. Like I have zero interest in getting on TV and talking about only what they show. If I can't be part of what we're gonna show and if I can't be part of how we're gonna do this, I don't want any part of it because. That's just my personality, and, and NBC is just this incredible fit for me because everybody in, everybody in, I don't care if you're a producer, if you're a director, if you're a commentator, if you're a cameraman, everybody can have an opinion, and I love yeah. being part of that. That's great. Uh, just a, sort of an off-the-wall question here. From you? Surely yeah, not. from me. Jeff, you once said something about going into politics. Is that still a possibility? Still in your mind? Somewhere? So, sort of, kind of, but, um, and that, and you know, what that comes from is that, you know, I didn't serve in the military. I didn't, you know, I left high school and went and built race cars and, and, um, I didn't, haven't served my country. I haven't, I live in the greatest country in the world and I don't feel like I've served it. And so I, I feel a pull to want to do something for the country. And at that time, I thought politics made a lot of sense. Today, I don't. Um, you know, being older and, and I don't know, I think maybe I can impact in a different way other than politics. But I want to serve my country. I want right. to, I want to, uh, listen, I love what I'm doing. And I want to do, you know, my friends are in the garage. My, you know, when I go, the, I, I don't, I don't, on a Thursday, dude, damn, I got to go to the racetrack. On a Thursday, I'm like, I get to go to the racetrack. Yeah. 
And, you know, as long as I feel like that, I want to keep doing this. But when, when either they won't have me any longer or that drive isn't there anymore, then I want to do something to, to serve my country uh, because I think we live in the greatest country in the world. Do you have a picture of what that might be at this point? I don't. Okay. Yeah, I, 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 um, I really don't. I, I, you know, I, I, um, I'm just, I'm, I'm a very blessed person. I love what I do. I work with people that I, that I, I love and that I have good relationships with. Um, and I'll, I'll be damned if I'm going to take myself out of that situation. You know, I mean, I'm just happy and, and, and I'm proud of, I am really proud of what we do on Saturdays and Sundays. I'm proud of the effort that goes into it. And you know, listen, some people didn't like Howard Cosell and some people loved him, right? There's people that, that like what I do and there's people that don't like what I do. But what you never question is the effort. And, and no one will ever question the desire, the effort, and the teamwork. I mean, our team, you know, I spent 15 minutes on the phone this morning with Steve Latart talking about, we're not covering races right now. I spent 15 minutes with Latart talking about, you know, about the race last weekend. And that's, that's you know, we care, we like it, we enjoy it. And I'm proud of, I'm proud of what we put on TV. I really am. Hello, Scene Vault Podcast listeners. This is Eric Quinn from QWare. Again, I just want to say thank you for listening to the Scene Vault Podcast and Rick and Steve and the wonderful interviews they've been doing with the folks from NASCAR history, the drivers, the crew chiefs, the people that made it all happen over the years. At QWare, we are very proud to be a part of this podcast and being able to bring it to you, especially at a time when you have limited entertainment options. We hope that you're enjoying it, and we hope that you get a chance to check us out at QWareCMMS.com. QWare is one of the most powerful, simple-to-use, computerized maintenance management systems on the market for your facility's maintenance team. Whatever your business, check us out, QWareCMMS.com. We're here to help your team maintain excellence. From all of us at QWare, we hope that you and your family stay safe and healthy. Now let's get back to the podcast. Thanks for listening. Steve, you and I have talked on the podcast about a lot of different crew chief changes over the years. Buddy Parrott and the various teams that he worked with over the years. You got Die Guard, you've got Roush Racing, Diamond Ridge, Penske Racing. And then we actually talked to Dale Inman about leaving Petty Enterprises and also Hagen Racing. And we talked to Kirk Shelmerdine about his tenure at Richard Childress Racing and kind of the reasons behind his departure from that team. So Steve, when a crew chief and a driver have had some success together, how difficult is it when they eventually split up? I, you know, I don't want to go so far as to say it's almost like a marriage splitting up, but it's something very close. Well, uh, you know, at, at most of the time, it is a very difficult thing. Yeah. I think it's caused by a couple of reasons. Well, several, really, but most prominent among them are either the driver or the crew chief, they simply don't get along any longer. Yeah. They 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 don't have the same ideas. Uh, they don't have the same plans. They don't have the same strategies, and that's not going to work. And there's a balance of power there. Exactly. You have the driver in the seat of the race car. You also have somebody working the pits, overseeing the pits, who might have been doing it for a very long time, become very successful, led a lot of people to a lot of wins. 
That is a balance where, of power. Yeah, where, sometimes where does that there lie? is a power struggle. I think that power struggle is based more on ideas and philosophies yeah. than most anything else. Also, Rick, is something very simple here, a lack of productivity. Yeah. I mean, if the team yeah. does not perform at a level that it used to, well, it's time to make a change. Yes, I absolutely and agree. sometimes the owner does that. But in this case, it was actually Jeff, evidently, that had that say-so. So that evidently was where the power lay in that relationship. So a crew chief is one thing, but then Jeff winds up leaving Roush Racing in the middle of the 2004 season to move over to Richard Childress Racing. And not only does he swap teams in the middle of the season, he swaps from Ford to Chevrolet. A manufacturer switch. And that is huge in racing. Oh, that move was definitely huge. huge. And we talked to Jeff about that. And Jeff said that it was just time for he and Jack to do something different. He said (laughs) his assometer (laughs) was evidently messed up. But Jeff did say that because the team had not been as successful in the last year or so, however long it had been, he said that he felt like his voice wasn't being heard as much as what it had been earlier in their run together, late 90s, when Jeff had that phenomenally successful 1999 season, winning, I believe, six races, then the year 2000, he won four races. So as that success kind of ebbed a little bit, uh, maybe other voices started to creep in. What did we talk about earlier? What did we talk about? Yeah. Productivity. Productivity. And one member of the team didn't feel like his ideas or his philosophies or his strategies were no longer being appreciated. Jeff is the kind of person who is not content just sitting in the seat. He wants to have input into what goes into the car. He wants to have input setting it up at the race shop. So he wants to have his fingers on that race car. Most successful drivers are just like that. They want to be a part of everything that goes on because they feel they can contribute. And what's more, he told Kim and he told Russell Branham. What role did Russell Branham play in that? Was he working for Jeff or working for... No, he was working for Jeff. He was working for Jeff. Okay. Okay. All right. I didn't quite catch that relationship, but... He did tell Russell Branham, who has been in this sport forever and ever and ever. And he worked at Darlington. At, and now he's the PR director at Tal- uh, Talladega. Yeah, and he was at Darlington for quite a long time. But but Jeff did sit down with Russell. He did sit down with Kim. And he said, listen, this kid, Carl Edwards, he's pretty sporty. And he's going to get in this car. And for at least a year and a half, we're going to get our ass kicked. And I thought that was a pretty powerful statement. And you got to kind of wonder, if you know that you're going to get your butt kicked, why make this move? But the way Jeff was evidently thinking, it's going to take me a year and a half to get my fingerprints (laughs) (laughs) on RCR and get them to think in the way that I'm thinking. Well, that's a very good philosophy. Yeah. I mean, most of the time you truly cannot expect a driver – to join a team, particularly one before season is over. Yeah. And and turn around and make great success with that. It's, it's happened, but mm-hmm. it's so rare. You have to plan on 
getting there at some point. And Steve, that's pretty much exactly what happened. Jeff did not win again until the fall of 2006 at Dover. And I thought it was kind of ironic. Carl Edwards finished second in the <laughs> number 99 Ford. And Steve, speaking of Carl Edwards, when I talked to Bobby Labonte, he remember going back and forth with Del Jarrett about Bobby making the move to Joe Gibbs and DJ going to Robert Yates. So there was evidently a little bit of yeah. conversation there. Yeah. And the same thing happened here at Rouse Racing, evidently. When Jeff was going to move to RCR, he kind of got in touch with Carl and said, I believe you're the guy. Absolutely. And he went to bat for Carl. You know, that has happened before. And I think the reason that Jeff did that was that he saw the potential Carl had. Yeah. And he knew that in the right situation, Carl could be successful. And that's why he went to bat for him. And when he went to bat for him, I think Jack and Jeff Smith, who was the president of Roush Racing at the time, they kind of came back to him and said, I don't know if this kid is ready. And Jeff said, bull crap. He's, He's going to be ready. good. And Jeff proved to be correct. <laughs> yeah, he did. And Steve, you asked Jeff what winning at Dover meant to him. And he got kind of emotional talking about the memory of the different drivers coming to Victory Lane to congratulate him. Who can forget the 1998 Daytona 500? I think back to Kurt Busch coming to Victory Lane at Darlington and yeah. shaking hands with yeah. Ricky Craven. Great race yeah, after that amazing finish. When you get the respect of your peers, that is what means the absolute world True. to you. True. And drivers may be competitive against each other when they're on the track. However, I think the thing that means more to them is the respect mm -hmm. they earn from each other. Yeah. And that's exactly what Jeff accomplished. Well, speaking of respect between drivers, <laughs> we go to Texas uh -oh. in 2010. I have to wonder, of all the people in that garage, who would have surprised you more to get in a fight? than Jeff Burton and Jeff Gordon. They would have been among the two that I would have very, very, very least have expected. I could not imagine that at all. <laughs> Here's one for you. How about Jeff Gluck and Bob Pockris? <laughs> In the media center. <laughs> that might be fun. <laughs> we yeah. set up a cage match. Yeah, a 10-rounder. Ten, huh. <laughs> I'll ask you this. This Jeff Gordon, Jeff Burton scuffle or whatever, who won the fight? I'm going to be uh, <laughs> a diplomat and call it a draw. <laughs> and Steve, in all fairness, Jeff Burton did say that he considered that moment to be one of the lowest of his career. And I really believe that he meant that. Sure. I think so, too, because the incident portrayed him as something he was not. Yeah. If you go back and you watch that video of them on the racetrack and Jeff Burton getting into the back of Jeff Gordon, it does look intentional. Sure. I don't see how you can watch that and explain it any other way. It looked like it was intentional. Which explains why it was such a low point in Jeff's career. He doesn't do that sort of thing. And he said that he and the other Jeff were mad because they weren't running so well that day. I think they were running for 18th, 19th, 17th, 18th, 19th, somewhere in there. He said that Jeff Gordon kind of swerved at him. He swerved at Gordon. And <laughs> according to Jeff Burton, their cars basically just got hooked up together. But I think what really got 
Jeff Burton's attention was the fact that when Jeff Gordon hit the wall, he hit the wall hard. Yeah. This wasn't just a little tap and a spin and you don't hit anything. He hit the wall hard, and Jeff Burton said that he thought that Jeff Gordon might have been actually hurt. And you can imagine how Jeff Burton felt about all that. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I'm sure no that that was, was yeah. So down. I'm sure that was like a bucket of cold water. That got his attention very, very much. <laughs> but then I still had to kind of laugh about the phone call that he got from Mike Helton. And Mike Helton asked Jeff Burton what happened. <laughs> said that there might be a fine coming. And this is pretty good. Jeff Jeff Burton <laughs> said, Yeah, I don't no, I don't I don't think so. I don't think I don't think you ought to find Jeff Gordon. <laughs> he didn't mean to do anything. So <laughs> that was the perfect way to get out Absolutely. of that. Absolutely. Okay, Rambo, follow Brian. Can I do this? Kelb. Can I do this? <laughs> yeah. Follow Brian, Brian Kelb. Kelb. Speedway T S J dot. And Rick says Etsy, but I'm gonna say T S J dot E T S Y dot com. That way people driving down the road can write it down. <laughs> And he can't make fun of me. That's <laughs> oh, I can way. always make fun of you. <laughs> T-S-J dot E-T-S-Y dot com. No. <laughs> okay, well, what about Instagram and Twitter? Oh, Come well, on, man. I don't know about all that. <laughs> you can do that part. <laughs> okay, so follow Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway. S-P-E-E-D-W-A-Y-S-C-R-E-E-N-S. Okay, how's that? That's better. Okay, better. all right. Follow Brian Kelb on Instagram <laughs> and Twitter at Speedway Screens and check out his inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com. Yes, awesome stuff. <laughs> I, I finally got it because, you know, Rick, he texted text it to me after he made fun on his podcast about it. <laughs> but uh, he texted it to me, and he definitely got some good stuff there. I'm going to hit him up for some some stuff here for long. Steve, the September 4th, 1997 issue of Winston Cup scene. Jeff Gordon had won the 1997 Daytona 500 and the 1997 Coca-Cola 600 at Charlotte. And then going into the Southern 500, he held off a furious, and I'm talking about a furious charge from Jeff Burton to claim a cool one million bucks in bonus money for only the second time in the Winston Millions history. First time, 1985 with Bill Elliott. That win was Jeff Gordon's fourth overall at Darlington, and it was his third straight Hard to believe. Southern 500. And what's more, he would go on to take the Southern 500 in 1998 for four straight in that historic event. <laughs> Even harder to believe. <laughs> <laughs> and he won another two <laughs> Southern 500s in 2002 in 2007. So I would say that Jeff Gordon would have to be pretty satisfied with his track record. In uh, Darlinger. <laughs> it's outstanding. It's one of the greatest ever, right up there with David Pearson. Yes, right down there in Kerry Tharp's neighborhood. So Jeff Gordon said in this issue, the team won this race today. I might have had something to do with the last couple of laps, but it was the team today. They were awesome. They were taking spring rubbers out 
And then I was asking them to put them back in. The thing of it was, they did it all without losing time. Yes, I feel like we earned it today. And Jeff Burton got around Dell Jarrett for second place on lap 364. And, <laughs> and Steve, he went after Jeff Gordon like a dog on a bone. <laughs> well, as he said after the race, I did mean to bump into him. I was trying to win the race. Well, coming off turn four toward the white flag, Jeff Burton moved down low. He was going to dive off that corner, make the move under him. And it was pretty much on from there. Jeff yeah. Gordon continued and said, I saw him coming, so I moved down, and he plowed right into my rear end. It almost picked up the rear wheels. I was lucky I didn't spin out right there. Jeff slid sideways and got on the apron. Here, there's all that sand and debris. He got that on his tires. We banged into each other as we headed into the first turn, but then he had to let up because he was on ice. And Jeff Gordon went on to say that if Jeff Burton had waited until the last lap, he might have won that race. Could have. But I think even on the last lap, Jeff Burton gave it all he <laughs> Well, here, here's the comments from Jeff Burton's point of view. He said, he said, we had a good enough car to make it interesting anyway. I would have got him, but I got the toe end knocked out when we hit. I'll be honest. I tried to knock the S dot, dot, dot. <laughs> and I'm betting that wasn't snot. <laughs> he said, I tried to knock the S dot, dot, dot out of him when he hit me. I tried to put him in the wall, and I just missed him. He cut down on me coming down the front straight away, but he's going for a million dollars. You can't blame him, but I'm going for a win too. I was going to do whatever I had to do. I had him passed. He was determined to win that race, and Jeff Gordon was determined to win a million dollars. You have a very volatile situation. Oh, there. yeah, that <laughs> that fuse is lit. That's, that's asking for it. <laughs> I'm surprised they didn't get out of their cars and start duking it out that day. <laughs> but, Steve, this was a day after Jeff Burton had led 117 of the Bush Series events, 147 laps to kind of dominate that race. I, I always loved it when the Winston Cup guys came down and hey now, wait raced with our wait Bush Series young up-and-comers. <laughs> I thought that was so nice of them to come down and show the young bucks how to do it and everything. I, I'm, I'm I, was, I was a big supporter of that. I am a little bit confused. <laughs> <laughs> I don't sense your honesty. <laughs> but, Steve, what I really remember about that post-race was being – in the scrum around Jeff Burton for the sidebar on Jeff Burton that I had been assigned. It had been a, just a hellacious fight to the checkered flag. And everybody wanted to know the story about that. And this reporter kind of elbowed the way into the scrum and looked at Jeff and said, Jeff, I understand that NASCAR got on radio and told you guys to back off so Jeff Gordon could win the Winston Million. Oh, no. He have any comments? Not really. That happened. I was there. Oh. <laughs> and Jeff Burton, to his everlasting credit, looked at this reporter and said, get the hell out. And I'm not saying another word until you leave. Good for him. And Steve, listen, I'm all about a conspiracy theory. Hey, I'm a grassy knoll guy. But in that instant, 
that was just a sensationalized, I don't know. I mean, that looking for a story that just isn't there. And if at anybody, that particular time. yeah, if anybody had seen those last two or three laps no and way. wondered if Jeff Burton had backed off, no. no. Jeff Burton had tried to knock the snot right. <laughs> out of Jeff Gordon. Which is why Jeff Burton was so <laughs> upset with the question and the report yeah. and told the reporter to leave. Yeah, so I, I don't know. Blame I don't know. I don't know. But we mentioned in the intro, as exciting as the finish of that race was, its start was one of the most bizarre things that I've ever seen at a racetrack. Just after the green flag came out to start the race, Dale Earnhardt, got into the wall. Well, you know, Dale Earnhardt getting into the wall, you know, he's not going to be the one to do that on the first lap. So, but it, you don't think it's anything necessarily Yeah, but it major. was afterward that scared everybody. Yeah. I mean, he came down to the inside of that racetrack and it seemed like he could not find pit road. It looked like he could not control the car. I yeah. The car yeah. swerving back and forth. And it was it was terrifying to tell the truth because everybody thought that Dale might have had a serious medical problem. Well, I was going to say that surely it had something to do with the race car because this is Dale Earnhardt. This is the legend. This is the one tough customer. This is the guy who I saw drive at Watkins Glen a couple of weeks after breaking his sternum. And run the whole race. Yeah, that's all true. But the minute I saw it, yeah. I thought the other way. Did you I really? I did not think much about the yeah. car being off. I thought something was wrong with Dale. The fact is, nobody knew what was going on. They got him out of the race car, and there is a just this, I, I don't know how to put this picture, but there's a photo in, in this issue of his crew carrying Dale Earnhardt. Right. And that's not... I just intensified. Yeah. Yeah. So nobody knew what was going on. The screwy thing is, I don't think anybody knows to this day, or at least not that they've said. There was something about, I think he had an electrolyte reaction to Gatorade or, you know, some kind of nonsense like that. When he finished second at Martinsville a couple of weeks after this, after he finished second in that race, he said, I just got abducted by aliens. <laughs> I remember that. But to be honest with you, Rick, I have never heard yeah. a direct explanation. Yeah. yeah, Never. Because if he had had a heart attack, NASCAR would never, ever, ever, ever have allowed him in the car the next week at Richmond. Absolutely. It would not have happened. Yeah. But all his tests evidently came back fine. But he did have a press conference that next week going into Richmond, and he said, I don't know what happened. I just don't know. I feel great now. They've run all kinds of tests on me, check me out, and I feel fine. I'm ready to go racing. Very strange, all the way around. And what is maybe the craziest of all of this is that he went to Richmond, he finished 15th a couple of laps down, so that wasn't that great a night, but he then proceeded to finish 8th at New Hampshire. He finished 2nd at both Dover and Martinsville. He finished third at Charlotte. He had a so-so run at Talladega, but then he was eighth at Rockingham and fifth at Phoenix. And in 1997, he did not win a race for the first time since 1981. But that stretch after this happened at Darlington was his best stretch of the year. 
Very unusual. So I, I don't know what was it's going on there. I mean, Rick, it's a mystery. To be honest with you, I, I don't think anybody has any real explanation for it. But apparently when he said, I feel fine and I'm ready to race, well. Evidently uh, he meant it. He meant it, yeah. <laughs> And Steve, going on into this issue, there were a couple of feature stories, as there almost always was. There was a throwback story to Harry Gant, and there was also a feature by Thomas Pope yeah. on Paul Sawyer, who was the president at Richmond. Right. International Paul Sawyer Awards. is one of the uh, classic, independent, no-nonsense racetrack owners, right up there at Claire Earls. They both pretty much started at the same time. Uh, Richmond... Then Did Paul as, Sawyer know Sam Clay? <laughs> <laughs> Very well, as I recall. <laughs> but Paul Sawyer's first race at uh, Richmond was in 1953, and he'd been running races there ever since. Wow. Now, I like to think that he would have done more to make improvements at Richmond over the years if he could have. Let's not forget, he was part of the Virginia State Fairgrounds. So, consequently, he had to have business relationships with them and maybe he wasn't free to do all the things he would like to do with the track you know i even wrote about the track one time saying that sooner or later it's going to have to do something about guardrails yeah guardrails where they're impacted by cars become weapons yes well he didn't like that oh he saw me a week or two later and he wanted to take me behind the woods yet <laughs> and wear me out. And I can understand that. I can understand that. But I also feel that somehow he was handcuffed by his association with the state fairgrounds. In time, in all fairness, in time, by 1989, Richmond changed dramatically. Yes. Uh, it went from the half-mile track it was into a glittering new three-quarter-mile track. Mm -hmm. Very, very handsome facility, still is, and is still the only three-quarter mile track on the circuit. So it offers a lot of real opportunities for good racing, and at the same time, so much more improved in comfort and amenities and services for fans and competitors alike. I think that's Paul's crowning achievement. I don't know if you saw it, but yesterday on Sunday, Fox actually aired the 1986 yes. Miller High Life 400, won by Kyle Petty. <laughs> the great race. Do I win the race or win the pool? <laughs> that story will live in infamy in Scene Vault Podcast history. But watching that event in 1986, that track has underwent a just an absolutely yeah, you can see dramatic that race, transformation. What that track was like yeah. then, you know. And he still had exciting racing. That wasn't the point. What it needed to be done in order to survive are the things that Paul Sawyer eventually achieved. And Steve, somebody on Twitter actually tweeted the same vault Twitter account and asked why those changes took place. And I would assume it was just survival, That's modernization, right. survival. expansion. You remember about yeah. the time of the mid to late 80s right. when tracks, and even into the 90s, when tracks like North Wilkesboro, even Nashville earlier, and later Rockingham, just went away because they were not up to the standards necessary at the time. Not only in attendance figures, but also amenities for the fans, amenities for the press, amenities for the competitors. Well, I think if you watched that race yesterday from 1986, you had to notice 
the fact that the front stretch grandstands were probably, Steve, they had to have been 20, 30 yards from the front stretch. And people were asking, why was it designed like that? And somebody came back and said that because it was a part of the fair board and everything, yeah. part of the fairgrounds, that they actually held mud bogs there, tractor pools or whatever. They had all kinds of events yeah. there. As I said earlier, I think one of the uh, handicaps that Paul had to overcome was the fact that that track was part of the state fairgrounds. Yeah. And the state fairgrounds, to their own credit, are going to try to make the most of that track for themselves as they possibly can. It wasn't all about NASCAR. You can say what you want to about old school racing and everything, but if I'm at Richmond before the renovation and I've got seats down low on the front stretch, I can't imagine that was a very good view. No, it was As far away from the racetrack. The grandstands themselves (laughs) were not very adequate. And, Steve, this is another thing that I know that you have faced over the years. I would have no way of knowing until until that blessed day (laughs) when the entire scene vault archive is finally digitized, but I would have no way of knowing exactly how many stories and columns that I wrote for scene. I'm thinking my number would certainly be somewhere in the hundreds, And if my number of stories and features and race leads and columns and commentaries and everything is in the hundreds, (laughs) I'm thinking yours would definitely be in the thousands. (laughs) It's been a long, long haul. (laughs) (laughs) But that being the case, there are going to be instances where we do stories, we follow them, then we move on to the next lead that we have on a story. Going through this issue, I found my column for that week. And it was about an incident following the July race at Myrtle Beach. Driver Eddie Bear had failed to qualify for the event, and three of his crew members were driving the rig home to Mechanicsville, Virginia. And about 6 p.m. that night on I-95 near Smithfield, North Carolina, the rig that they were driving burst into flames. You know, I don't remember this. And Robert Luck was driving the thing, Jason Bear, and Mike Biddle, they jump out the passenger side door as it's still doing about 40 miles an hour. That's how bad a fire this I was. Blame. I'd be jumping with them. And Mike winds up with third-degree burns on his right arm and second-degree burns to both thighs. And Robert, again, he was driving, and he had both arms burned as well as the right side of his face, a portion of his neck, both legs from the mid-thigh down to his ankles, and the top of his left foot. Mike was in the hospital until July 18th, while Robert wasn't released until July 25th when he went into a rehab facility. Eddie Bear, the team owner, said, Robert had to stay in the truck longer to get it off the road. Mike was on the passenger side, and he was the first to get the door opened. Jason was in the middle, and he came out behind Mike. Robert had to wait until they got out of the way. By the time he opened the door, The cab had filled up with fire. So he was sitting there completely engulfed in flames, basically driving the truck. I don't know how he did it. I don't know that I could have sat there that long. And that, I don't know, man. The way that was described, I don't know how he did it either. I mean, that's just, yeah. Eddie had already DNQ'd at Dover. Then he had this incident after missing the field at Myrtle Beach. And then he missed the race at Richmond and Dover later in the year. And he wound up making one start in 1998 at Dover and then made a couple of races a year in both 2001, 2004. And, Steve, I have no recollection 
of writing this story. <laughs> Vaguely, I remember the incident once I started reading the story and everything, but I had no recollection whatsoever of writing it. And that's not, that's obviously, obviously didn't have anything to do with the dramatic nature of what happened. Certainly doesn't mean that I don't think what they went through was serious. No, I understand, Rick. I mean, I can tell you this. Uh, ever since we've been doing this podcast and going back and looking at, at past issues. Who wrote that? I don't remember. It says Steve Wade. Don't remember writing, but I do recall after yeah. I read them. Yeah. So, again, I don't know how many stories I wrote for saying, and you obviously don't know how many no. you wrote. That has been the thing about doing this project is going through these issues and jogging our memories. I agree wholeheartedly. Yeah, that has been so amazing to go through these issues. As much fun as we try to give our listeners, boy, we have a lot of fun ourselves. <laughs> I'm Steve Mill, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. Steve, have you got your copy of Brave in Life ready to ship out? I think we're fixing to have to ship some of these out. It's here. <laughs> we need three more iTunes reviews, and we will have 100 written reviews on iTunes. And once we get to that plateau, we are going to send out the copies of the books that I've written on NASCAR. We're going to send out the one, the one and only <laughs> book that Steve has written on NASCAR, Brave in Life, the Junior Johnson story. So, Steve, we have gotten some just amazing reviews the last couple I, of weeks. I have read them, and I agree with them 100%. <laughs> Joy C124 says, best NASCAR podcast. Start car racing was the first sport I remember watching. It was our family sport. I remember going to the mailbox on Fridays to get the latest copy of Winston Cup Scene. It was the most read periodical in our house. When I found the Scene Vault podcast, it brings back a lot of memories of that weekly paper, the great and not-so-great moments in NASCAR history. The guests that Rick and Steve have on are remarkable, and the stories are what have built the sport. Thank you, Rick and Steve, for this weekly getaway back to the stories that made NASCAR the sport that I love. Oh, that's terrific. <laughs> terrific. And then Mike Tuck 12 said, history, history, history. This podcast is amazing. I listen to a lot of different NASCAR pods during the week, and I love each and every one of them. I'm always on the lookout for this one. If you like history and NASCAR, this is the absolute best podcast for you. Bringing back memories from my childhood and then also getting information from before my childhood, and much more behind-the-curtain action. These interviews and stories are pure gold for a true NASCAR fan. Please keep up the good work. That's cool. What makes me feel good about it is I think, Rick, we are achieving what we're set out to do. Yeah. Bring back the memories to fans. And, Steve, I think it's important to, again, get across. You and I are sitting across the room from each other, the whole social distancing thing and all that. This thing that's going on with the COVID-19, the coronavirus, it is a time to be cautious. It is indeed. But I also think it's a time when we desperately need diversions. 
from worrying about the news, the unknown and everything. I agree. I agree. You and I, as far as we know, are going to continue to do this podcast. We're going to get together every week on Mondays, and we're going to continue to put out a product that I think that people really do enjoy. Yeah, and the problems may be out there and the concerns may be out there. All we ask of the people who list our program is to enjoy it, number yeah. one. And number two, be very practical. Yes. Take care of yourself. I think next week I could just set up the computer here and set the microphone here, and I think that would work. Because the issue, the issue is looking back and forth yeah. between my notes. So, yeah, we'll be okay. That's kind of what I'm doing, but it's not as dramatic. Yeah, yeah, yeah.